The talk is on the factors of light in the mind, the seven factors of awakening. The Buddha described a conceptual framework for freedom, for complete understanding or freedom. Uh, And these are the nuts and bolts of how uh, that process can happen for us this uh, deep balance of mind. And this is just a framework. Uh, So please take what is useful for you and try to leave aside what isn't useful for you because it is just a framework. Uh, But it's a framework that said even that the devas love to hear uh, about these factors of light in the mind. And I thought that it's such a kind of dark, rainy day, that maybe talking about light would be balancing. The seven factors are mindfulness, uh, which is necessary for them all to come into balance. You know, you kind of assume that mindfulness is there with the other six. Uh, And then investigation or interest, energy or courage, and rapture or joyful interest are the energizing light factors in the mind. And then calm, concentration, and equanimity are the tranquilizing factors of light in the mind. Different of these factors are ripening for us at different times in the day and in our lives. When they come into balance, Uh, It's said to be a complete moment of understanding, a very deep freedom in that moment. Sometimes when we hear these, I think we tend to think that they're maybe obscure or far from us, uh, but actually they're closer to us than our bones. And these factors evolve. They can ripen, they mature. Uh, And understanding what they are helps us to understand our own potential and others' potential, even the devas listening right now, for freedom. So through the practice of mindfulness, uh, these factors come into balance and a deep completion of understanding is our potential, all beings' potential. And they can come into balance in any moment, but they don't come into balance in the past or the future. They can only come into balance in the present moment, in a moment when we're brushing our teeth with mindfulness, when we're brushing our hair, when we're eating some strawberry shortcake, when we're with the the movement of a step, when we hear a sound, It can be the sound of a chainsaw or the sound of a bird. Uh, What matters is that the awareness is in balance. It doesn't matter what we're noticing. So freedom isn't dependent on what we're noticing, but really these qualities in the mind that are ripening. And so this ability to come into balance in a moment uh, takes practice. Uh, And if you think of it, as um, like when you learn to ride a bicycle. Uh, But this is much harder. (laughs) 
unfortunately, than learning to ride a bicycle. But if you remember, you didn't probably get on the bicycle without training wheels and take off. You know, we fall off a lot to learn balance. And to learn how to be in balance in the present moment with understanding, we fall off a lot. You know, that's part of how we learn. And that reminded me of a Rumi poem, which is entitled, he said, the way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall, and falling, they're given wings. We were talking this morning about noticing when we're tight or constricted, when we're walking or sitting or anything. And it's this process of noticing that that allows us to find the balance with relaxation itself. You know, we don't learn to be free without that experience of seeing that we're contracted. And that's what this falling means. We don't find the wings without noticing that we don't have them in certain places in our life. Uh, And when we notice that we're falling or contracted or tight or lost, what do we do? We start again. You know, so you can see how mindfulness is the foundation of these factors of enlightenment. You can think of them as like the fabric of freedom. Uh, That ability to remember to start again. The very first part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering to come back from being lost in the conceptual. So mindfulness is this beautiful fabric It's the foundation for the other six factors to ripen. Uh, And we've talked about it a lot, so I won't talk about it too much, but just remembering it's that non-conceptual, non-judgmental, pre-verbal awareness. It's the ability to be with our direct experience rather than lost in a thought about the experience in the moment. It's the ability to renew ourselves moment by moment, over and over, day by day. And it's to remember that mindfulness is part of the journey of life. It's like a way of life uh, that just very simply remembers to come back to present time awareness. Uh, So it's not complicated, it's that it becomes a way of life. Sometimes it's called recollecting or remembering. And the Buddha said that all things can be mastered by mindfulness. That's pretty strong. All things can be mastered by mindfulness. Investigation is the second factor of awakening, and it's the first of the energizing factors. Uh, And it's really um, the beginning of what allows for exploration to happen. 
it's not um, striving. It's interest for the sake of interest itself. Uh, sometimes investigation is described as if you were in a dark room and you had just a bare light bulb and you turn the light on. You know, that's how powerful investigation is. It lights up what's happening in the moment. Uh, it lights up any darkness in the mind and it's, it's what allows our insight into um, existence to happen. It's what allows the birth of wisdom to happen. And sometimes investigation can be a very, very subtle shift in the mind. It doesn't have to be um, a huge shift, uh, but it requires moving from thinking that we know what's happening, uh, which creates such a dullness in the mind, uh, to allowing that we don't know what's happening. Uh, because the truth is that we really don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And that kind of arrogance that we think we know creates this complacency that puts us to sleep. Uh, so it's not <clears throat> to knock that we live in the relative world of reality and that we need to use concept to function, uh, but that it becomes such a prison for us, you know, such a tragic tragic prison for us, that this, this factor is so important because it brings energy. It brings us the energy uh, to get the wings, to see that we're falling further and further asleep into thinking we know everything. So basically this interest is asking the question, what's happening? What, what's happening right now. Uh, and the mind can become crackling, alive, bright from this question. And sometimes it's just asking the right question at the right time in practice that can allow this simple shift. We can't make interest happen, which we did talk about this morning. But sometimes, even if the memory that we can ask a simple question, when that's there, it's a sign that interest is already there. You know, there's that potential ripening already happening. And so if we're walking and we're taking a step, it's that ability to ask ourselves in the moment, you know, what is my experience of leg free from my ideas about it? with the breath, what's the experience of the breath, free from my ideas about it, or anything, what's my experience of fear? It's that ability to notice the experience as if it was the first time we ever saw fear. You know, so we have this whole idea about what we should get rid of in our practice and what we should hold on to. Uh, and, and if we can know that it's not that we're going to necessarily get rid of fear, but that we can learn to be interested in it, learn to experience it, and then it won't bother us. We can tolerate it. It's something worthy of our attention because it can happen to us as human beings. Anything that happens to us is, is worthy of our attention and can liberate us. 
You know, so of course the descriptions of this are endless because we can bring it into, well, what is chewing? What is a chicken? Now, what is a chipmunk? Who am I? And this requires being willing to be insecure, willing not to know. Being willing to be insecure totally determines beginner's mind. So if we can face the insecurity and of non-conceptual awareness, uh, this light of awareness can come and it lights up the truth of our direct experience. And it lights up uh, the three characteristics of existence that the Buddha taught. It lights up our understanding of impermanence. It lights up our understanding of, of suffering or the unsatisfactoriness of existence or experience. It lights up that experience is insubstantial, that there's nothing to hold on to. So you can see how that's an energizing light factor in the mind. The next factor in the mind that's light energizing is energy. Uh, my first course with Sayada Upandita, he described this factor of, of awakening as heroic effort or courageous effort, basically, as courage. And it was the first time I heard this factor described as courage, and it was so helpful. <laughs> you know, because I had always heard right effort, right effort, right effort, and, and it just sounded kind of um, like you needed a whip. Um, but courage is such a different quality of the mind or heart. Uh, so it's said that, you know, if we can actually have enough um, energy and mindfulness to be willing to be insecure and to face the non-conceptual, uh, then, this, then it takes a kind of courage to sustain it. Basically, this is aiming and sustaining. In, in a different language. Uh, so it's the courage to connect with what's happening in the moment after it's lit up with the interest and then to sustain it. You know, so say one is with the breath or with anger or whatever, that you, can, you bring the attention to it, it's lit up, but also there's the courage to see it out, to see it through no matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So it's the courage to face what is, you know, not what we're wanting it to be happening, but what really is happening. At times the practice can be so effortless, and at other times it can take such enormous energy to face what's happening. And they're both true. You know, they're both valuable, they're both important. One isn't better than the other, one isn't more important than the other. We'll be doing both of them in our practice. We tend to get attached to the effortless, uh, but it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) 
It just means that when it's more effort, it means we're growing, we're facing something we haven't faced before, and it's important. If we use that example of Rumi where um, the birds learn to fly out of falling, uh, if you think of a bird learning to fly, you know, it takes some effort to get off the ground. It's called liberating effort in this practice. But, you know, their wings have to go. You know, the bird just doesn't get very far (laughs) without that initial, it's called launching effort in this practice. Uh, But, you know, if you see the turkey vultures or an an eagle or a hawk, um, once it makes that launching energy, you know, if you connect with that, watching a bird use air currents, once they're up there, to soar and to bring themselves higher and higher. It's the same feeling that we can um, experience in this practice. Once you have that investigation and courage to go, you you use the experience to lift you higher, see more clearly, to understand. And so again, it's not that it's just pleasant things. If we really... um, work with knee pain, or fear, or chewing, or whatever, you can see by aiming and sustaining and being with it, that is actually energizing. Being in the present moment and sustaining it, that's where you get the wings, that's where the energy actually comes from. I mean, there's been so many times in my practice where I just saw over years that there was a really big difference between coming in the hall and sleeping through a sitting than if I had been in bed totally unconscious. You know, there is a difference. Every time you nod and you come back, (laughs) you're awake. It's not very pleasant. But I noticed that over years, something changed in me because of that. You know, that... It's like um, we tend to judge those sittings as, you know, worthless, but actually there's something happening. Of course we love it when it's effortless, and of course we get attached to it, uh, but then it's learning how to work with it. It's like riding a bike. You know, I love to go downhill. (laughs) Going uphill, you know, I mean, it... Half of the hill, it seems to be okay, but the other half, I don't usually like it. I like the feeling when I get to the top. Uh, So to understand that uh, life is like that. There are the effortless times, the up and down times, and the practice is one of getting equanimity, which is the last factor of enlightenment, with it. But the energy to keep going with it, whether it's up or down, is really this courage or even flat. There are certain teachers um, that I had in my life that uh, expressed this to me as a kind of ardency. You know, I didn't feel a striving in them, but a real uh, ardency for full freedom. 
And I met a teacher like this in Upper Burma this year, and I, I really hadn't met a teacher that affected me that much since a teacher named Deepama, a woman from India that uh, is not alive anymore. So it was really nice for me to meet someone who inspired me in that way again. And it's, it's hard to describe, it's just a certain energy of just complete ardency. You know, just a total love of freedom and going for it. And so this was a Sayadaw that um, just happened to be visiting Sayadaw Ulakana, and he had asked Sayadaw Ulakana to come to his retreat center, which is really uh, far from where we were and much more um, difficult, really difficult conditions uh, for any Westerners. No Westerners have ever been even near there. Uh, so he had asked Sayadaw if he'd come open his retreat center. Uh, so when um, Sayadaw brought him to meet us, he kept telling me to the side, Sayadaw Lakana kept telling me, this is a very special Sayadaw. And I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, another Sayadaw. <laughs> and he'd say it again, this is a very special Sayadaw. And he just told me that no one else. Um, so I got interested um, and spent some wonderful um, time with him. Uh, and there was something quite unusual about him, which I'm not saying to kind of give us any ideas that this is the way to practice at all, uh, but it kind of um, describes his teasing quality and his ardency. Uh, he, one of his fingers was cut off. Uh, and when I was uh, with his friend Graham, who was helping teach from Australia, I was sitting talking with him through translation, and Graham came in a little later. And I had already talked with the Sayadaw about what had happened to his finger. Uh, he had cut off his finger um, so that his practice would go faster. Uh, and I'd never seen anything like this before, but it, it wasn't like uh, <laughs> it wasn't like we ever read about this in the Buddhist texts, and you don't meet people like that in Foodland or Safeway, you know. <laughs> so it is a bit odd, you know. So he was telling me the story about how um, he didn't have anything to give to the Buddha as a monk for some years, and he didn't have, um, he wanted to offer him something. And this was something deep. It wasn't like something very trite. <laughs> this was, you know, uh, I could feel it was a very deep thing. Uh, and he wanted his practice to go faster so that he could help others practice go faster. Uh, so he cut off his finger and put it in oil, and it turned to mercury. It's kind of a, um, he's like a saint, in Burma because of this. Uh, he's an unusual being. So this is the story. I'm sitting there, I just heard this, and Graham, who's really down-to-earth uh, Aussie <laughs> from, from Australia, came in. And so he bowed, and then the Sayadaw said to him, you know, why don't you cut off your finger? <laughs> you know, just out of the blue, he'd never met him, and, and so... You know, his eyes, he was just <laughs> startled. And he was great. He just came right back. He, he put his hands together and he said, Sayadaw, I'm experiencing a little bit of doubt. 
I've never seen this in the scriptures. I've never seen this in Buddhism. You know, and he went on and on and on. It was great. But it was fun because one could have that kind of fun dialogue with him. Uh, <laughs> and then when he described it as an offering and a deep offering, for him, when you met his ardency, you know, it wouldn't be the same for us if we did it, but for him, it really made sense. You know, it didn't have the feeling of striving. It didn't have the feeling of weirdness. It just seemed normal. In my early years of practice, I felt like um, there was an ardency, but there was also a desperation. You know, I felt like there was... I came to practice with such a thirst to understand, but also a kind of desperation to... Um, be free from suffering. And I had, uh, I was willing to die meditating. I would have cut off my finger. I would have done anything. You know, and I was so grateful for the practice and the teachings. I feel like over time, um, that desperation kept transforming into understanding. Uh, And it's like the ardency became more balanced. Uh, So I think that for all of us, when we hear the phrase, right effort, um, we go through a lot of changes in our relationship to that, and our motivation will change a lot. And sometimes the practice will look really different as we go through the years, where maybe we might not think we're as ardent, but maybe we're not as desperate. Or maybe we get more ardent, and uh, we get desperate. Who knows? You know, we all have our own uh, past. But really what matters is our sense of spiritual urgency. You know, life is very short. We don't have much time. And it's very precious, our spiritual life. You know, and that, to, to understand that and for the motivation to just come out of a balanced understanding of the preciousness of the gift of our human life because we get to do spiritual work here. Not everybody can. Not everybody has the karma to. It's hard, uh, but it's so wonderful to be able to meet our thirst for understanding with some practice. Sometimes I think of striving as when we're driving a car and we're looking out ahead and really like kind of tightly anticipating what we're driving into. Uh, But if you've ever had the experience of driving, uh, not being the driver hopefully, (laughs) but looking out the back window of the car. And just being in the back seat and looking out the window, you know how everything is just going by in a very different way? That's right effort. There's no possibility of anticipation or expectation. When you're in the present moment, it's just flowing by like that. 
There's no striving, no anticipation, no expectation. The experience of the present is just flowing. So we're just right there with the sound. It's happening so quickly. That's why I use that example of the back seat, the back window, because that's how fast it really is going by, or faster. Another metaphor that I often find helpful in terms of right effort in our practice, whether it's in a day or over years, is um, a worm, caterpillar, cocoon, butterfly. Now there are times when we just feel like oh, a caterpillar eating, <laughs> you know, crunch, crunch, crunch. You know, we're just kind of worm-like going along in our practice. Uh, we can't see very <laughs> Clearly, um, it's taking effort. We don't really know where we are. And then other times, it'll feel maybe even harder than that, because at least when we're the caterpillar, it'll feel like we're doing something. Uh, But the cocoon times in life are really when we're just incubating. You can't see anything happening. Uh, A lot is happening but we just can't see it. And that happens a lot. I mean, we tend to think that we should only go through that cycle once spiritually, but we go through it over and over in life. And so the cocoon times, what we really want to do with the cocoon times is get in there and just open it up and try to make the wings strong enough for flight. But you can't do that. It's just like meddling with it, meddling with that incubation actually destroys the butterfly and destroys the wings. You know, so there it takes some patience there. It's like a patience with our ardency. Uh, this takes a lot of balance and understanding and maturity. Uh, and then we do really like it when the butterfly part of our life happens, whether it's in the practice or in our life. Again, it's when there's a feeling of really understanding something and we do fly, and it feels wonderful. And we tend to think that that's how it should stay. Uh, But remember, if we're growing, it'll move. Life moves. We go back to being that caterpillar again. If we identify with the caterpillar, or the cocoon, or the butterfly, we get in big trouble. Sometimes, or most times, it's very hard to measure where we are. It's, it's like the practice is unfathomable and immeasurable. Uh, so it takes a lot of patience and relationship with our energy to keep us in balance through these changes. If we take personally the cocoon times or the caterpillar times, Uh, it's often where we get caught in self-hatred attacks and feel like we're doing it wrong. And remember that the opposite of courage is fear and impatience. And that often comes from uh, judging that we're lost or judging that we don't know where we are, rather than really understanding that not knowing where we are is part of this process. It's a large part of the process. What we learn to do in these places is to 
be here in the present moment lightly. You know, just very lightly with the breath, very lightly with walking. Um, not letting the striving overtake the ardency. Joy is the next energizing factor of awakening. So it's interest or investigation, energy or courage, and then it's called rapture or joyful interest. Um, And these are in relationship with these, I'm describing them in relationship with each other, but they don't always come in the order I'm describing. They're not always so linear. But an example of aiming or sustaining, or when we have the courage to actually sustain our attention with an experience, uh, pure interest, pure exploration can happen. So the investigation gets purified here. Uh, And this means that we're willing to explore out of the deep delight in the truth of things something, whether it's unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. So this isn't a joyful interest in something that's just pleasurable. And that's why it's so joyful. It's pure. It's not dependent on whether it's painful or pleasurable or neutral. And joy is called the gateway to freedom. It's the gateway uh, to deep understanding. Emily Dickinson said, to live is so startling it leaves little time for anything else. I think of this interest, the joyful interest, as um, any time we have the intention to understand our experience rather than to judge it. It's that pure, it's the opposite of a righteous mind, a dull mind, a timid mind or a judgmental mind. And because joyful interest includes all of experience, it's including exploring our own black holes, the black holes of the universe, the black uh, holes of our own karmic knots. And it also includes exploring uh, the most Uh, beautiful fireflies in a field this time of year, or the deep spaces of loving-kindness, or mindfulness, or equanimity. It's like the range of interest includes that range. There are times in my practice where I've really felt like I'm in a spaceship, and I'm the spaceship. You know, in just just walking along through the dining room and this hall or whatever, and that it's like I'm really in between Mars and Jupiter and stars, and it's like, and that it's, it's our bodies. It's just like, it can be like that sometimes. And other times it's the most <laughs> hard karmic knots that uh, that range is hard to fathom, but we can have a joyful interest in the whole show. It's an adventure. It's our human 
inheritance. Joyful interest is what allows us to move from the conceptual realm to the experiential level of experience, and that uh, the deep understanding or wisdom is born out of that experiential level. This is a poem from a man from Australia, Michael Lunig, and it's called The Prayer Tree. And I think of it as a way to bring joyful interest into our black holes. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it, let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel. Let it be free and it can be a path on which to travel. We don't always think of a broken heart as being a path on which to travel. You know, that takes this kind of energy of joyful interest. You can hear it in the, in the poem. There's this incredible broken heart, and let, one lets a stray dog lick it. We're the stray dog. We did the empathetic joy today, uh, and that practice is so important in terms of the range of joy in this world, because there's so much possibility for joy, uh, but we haven't learned to recognize it and appreciate it. You know, so often the things that bring us joy are really simple. Um, And when I think of just being here in Barrie this time, you know, there's a field of buttercups nearby, and it seems like the cows don't eat them, which is why in these fields there's nothing else growing in them but these that are high, but these buttercups. Uh, and they're just like spinning the field into gold. You know, it's just incredible. Or if you hear a wood thrush, I don't know if you know those birds, but they're around, uh, and they're like, divine. You know, I can name so many things that bring joy. For me, popcorn is one of them. (laughs) But we just, uh, Steve and I were teaching in British Columbia before we came here, and it's uh, near the ocean. And when I was a little girl, um, there was this one place I went as a little girl that uh, it was a miracle if one could find one sand dollar at this place in a summer, and it was like so precious. Well, in this place, um, a few years ago, I found a whole bed of alive sand dollars. I mean, for, to me, it was just amazing. You know, and if I ask myself, well, why? Why would that bring such joy? I go out there and I just look at them now every year. 
It's just something that brings me joy. There's no, doesn't have to be rational. Um, a soft heart is what allows joy to be accessible. And we can learn it from children if we don't know what it is. With joy, there's no need to indulge it and no need to repress it. If we repress it, we don't have this gateway to freedom. Joyful interest is that gateway to freedom. It's not helpful to repress it, but it's also helpful to learn how to balance it. It's like we can go off like a rocket if we get too um, identified with the joy. Even when we believe the thought, I am joyful, it's getting identified. It's just joy. So if we take it personally and get attached to it, you know, what goes up must come down uh, becomes an unacceptable experience. And we bring ourselves down through that fear. But the seven factors of enlightenment bring a kind of context for how to work with this joy. It's called highly energized interest. Uh, and if we indulge it, we go off. But the next three factors, calm, concentration, equanimity, are what allow us to take that energy and use it to deepen our understanding and deepen our compassion, rather than to get off balance with it. So when you see the face of a Buddha, there's this smile but it's not somebody who's laughing hysterically. If you look, <laughs> you know, you don't see this kind of somebody really unbalanced with joy, but there's joy. It's quiet, calm, concentration, equanimity, bring this balance to this joyful interest. Calm. I think of calm as like when you hear a refrigerator, the sound, you know that buzzing? And when it goes off. Doesn't it, don't you love it? <laughs> it just gets calm. It's described in the text of like going into the shade from the hot sun. Often in practice, I think especially my own practice in working with people, often there's a calm after the storm. You know, you can trace it in your own practice when the calm comes. Look back and you'll see it usually comes after a stormy period. Enjoy it. It's really tranquilizing. It brings this deep balance. The next is concentration. Marvin talked a lot about that ability to aim and connect, sustain the attention. This is one aspect, an important aspect of concentration. It brings stillness to the mind. It, it calms the surface of the mind. When I think of this ability to be still, I think of a great blue heron. And I don't know if you all know them, but they're a very tall, ancient bird that stands very still for hours, fishing. 
and it depends on the stillness for survival. If it isn't that still, it can't catch the fish. And we depend on the stillness to meet our thirst for freedom and understanding. Just as this bird depends on stillness for survival, we depend on it for survival spiritually. It's necessary to have some concentration to see clearly. Some seclusion helps bring about a deeper stillness. You can think of concentration as an uncomplicated mind. It just can be with (laughs) stepping, rising, falling, hearing, without having to get lost in thinking about it. And then we can sustain that simplicity. That's called seclusion. We're secluded from aversion, secluded from attachment, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And it takes practice. So we can see that that calm and then stillness helps balance the energizing factors. The next one of the tranquilizing factors is equanimity. It's inner space. It's transparency. Equanimity is unconditional peace. It's a nonviolent mind. Deep acceptance of life as it is. And when that nonviolent mind is happening, there's no resistance to anything that's appearing in life. So we're not reacting to the pain in the world with fear or anger. We're not reacting to the pleasure in the world with clinging attachment. And there's a deep happiness and peace. And this equanimity is what allows us to treat each moment equally, to not think that one moment is better for liberation than another. Pablo Neruda wrote this poem. This is part of the poem, just before he died. If on a road you find a boy stealing apples and a deaf old man with an accordion, remember that I am the boy, the apples, and that old man. Do not harm me by chasing the boy Do not strike the old bum. Do not throw apples in the river. Equanimity is really what allows the purification to happen in practice. When we look at what experiences for us aren't acceptable, that we don't have a peaceful mind with, it's important to see, well, why are they difficult to accept? Um, And it's really because we don't know how to experience them. You know, in my early years of practice, uh, the first layer that was really hard for me to work with was massive amounts of sloth and torpor. 
Uh, and initially my, f- my question was like, what am I going to do with all the sleepiness? It's in the way. And finally I had to realize, I had to say, well, maybe I better try experiencing this. And then once the sleepiness started to roll away a little, there was a lot of anger. And of course the question was, you know, what am I going to do with all this anger? (laughs) I'm not a very nice person. You know, it's in the way, I'll never be liberated. And again, it was finally, you know, the white flag. That white flag is unconditional acceptance. Maybe I better try learning how to work with this. And it goes on and on and on until we're fully liberated. You know, what, what's purifying? What are we working with this retreat? I would bet it's what you're having trouble learning how to experience. And until we get that, oh, <laughs> this, is, this is the teaching. This isn't the obstacle. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it only took me five years to open to loneliness. You know, whatever it is, no matter how sarcastic we can get about ourselves, it's just really that we don't know how to do it. We need compassion for ourselves. And then that, it's practice. It's pla- practicing riding the bike with loneliness. It's practicing riding the bike with sleepiness, whatever it is. Equanimity is the non-violent mind that lets us finally be at peace in the world. And we finally learn how to experience it. So freedom isn't getting rid of the sleepiness or the fear or the loneliness, as you can see. It's learning how it can become a workable experience, and we're not afraid of it anymore. Anything we're afraid of, we're still not free. Whether it's knee pain, a headache, or weariness. So I would ask you not to think too much about these seven factors of enlightenment. (laughs) That can be not helpful. But kind of getting a sense of and hearing them and hearing the lightness of them and the potential in them is wonderful. Uh, I think that at times it, it is helpful to know that if we're really calm, concentrated, going to sleep, You know, it can be helpful to remember that investigation could help. I mean, it's not that we try to force anything, but just to remember if we're getting dull, complacent, you know, that asking a little question once in a while can be helpful. And just like if we're uh, really flying, we're really energized, um, it's really helpful to remember, oh yeah, calm, concentration, equanimity. You know, this is very generalized, but it also can be helpful out in the world and on retreat. Um, 
remembering these factors can bring light into our system and balance. The seven factors help us to remember how precious our spiritual life is and understanding them helps us to understand that every moment of our life, every moment of the retreat, every difficult moment, every liberated moment is part of the spiritual journey of awakening. So as our understanding deepens, we slowly begin to accept each moment as our teacher. And the wisdom can just keep deepening and deepening until every day is a good day for awakening. Let's sit for a minute. Every moment is worthy for us to give attention to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.